You may be seated. Some of you have Bibles with you, and you've already opened them to Galatians, and your presumption has cut you down. We are in, we are going to be in First Kings this morning. So uh, there was a decision made because of, well, that stuff outside. That um, because we we were going to have a, a smaller fellowship, I wanted to keep sort of consistency with Galatians um, with the the larger group, and so we're going to do a sort of side study this morning in First Kings, and it's going to go pretty well along with what we had just got done talking about in Galatians about this smallness of sin. Okay, so last week we talked about how you can, you can waste your time and get, get off the track of being focused on Jesus Christ and him alone for your salvation as you run forward in your faith, that you can get sidetracked with nothingness. Well, we can also be sidetracked with small and insignificant sins and find ourselves well away from what our target is. And we have a wonderful example of that in the beginning of First Kings. So if you have your Bibles, open them there. It doesn't seem like a week goes by that you don't hear about another figure falling from moral failure. Just in the past couple of weeks, there is a, an accusation whether or not it's true. I, I do not know, but there are accusations that another megachurch pastor uh, has fallen to sin and that his, his treatment and, and abuse of women is now uh, being accused of him and, and he is stepping down from his position, although he maintains his innocence. We have multiple examples of people in the church, leaders within the church, who, who have risen to quite a stature, having fallen under their own moral weight. As, as the world around them crumbles, we look in one moment, we see them as figures of, of stability, of encouragement, of godliness. And then the next moment, we read and all of a sudden they're standing not on top of a mountain, but they are standing under a crushed ruin of a life. And we can be confused by that. And we can think that the suddenness of the news for us, as we, we think on Tuesday that this is an upright and moral man, and we find out on Wednesday that that is a sham, we can think that the suddenness of the fall in the revelation of it to us meant that it was a sudden fall for him too. That's oftentimes and almost always the time not the case. The way to ruin, according to Jesus, is wide, it's well paved, and it's easy. So we need to be careful of these things. Solomon is an absolutely stunning example of this as we turn to 1 Kings. We're actually going to turn to maybe the highlight of Solomon's reign in 1 Kings, in 1 Kings 8. And we're going to work our way through a good portion of 1 Kings. So we're going to be turning here and turning there as we go. And we'll have some application here at the end. But we're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 8. And we're going to look at this prayer that Solomon utters and to see how magnificent this particular moment in Israel's history is. Solomon lifts up his eyes, and in 1 Kings 8.27, he says this, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven can't contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God listening to the cry and to the prayer your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes might be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place, and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel, 
for they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. Chapter 8 is a very long chapter in 1 Kings. It is the dedication of the temple of God. And it is the culmination of a great deal in the early parts of the Bible. Going all the way back to Judges, the refrain at the end of Judges when Israel is coming apart at the very seams, and indeed those seams have ripped apart in civil war, the refrain throughout that portion of Judges is, there was no king in the land, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What we have in 1 Kings is the establishment not just of a king, but of that kingdom. We have the coming of David gloriously and beautifully portrayed in Ruth, uh, an actuality in First and Second Samuel. God then provides not only a king for his people, but a promise to that king. Uh, on the throne will always sit someone in your house. David comes to him and says, listen, I know you've been traveling in a tent, and tenting's okay, but I would like to build you an actual house. And God says, no, 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 David. I, I don't want you to build me a house. You can't. Your hands are bloody with war. Instead, I will build you a house. He allows David's son to build the house for him. This is huge implications. When this house is being built, God has already done for David what he promised to David. Solomon is the, not the culmination, but the continuation of that promise. It is God making his promise sure. A son of David sits on the throne. Not only has God provided a king, but he has provided a continuation of kings. Solomon sits on the throne. And what's more, Solomon's hands aren't bloody from war. Peace has come to Israel. Israel's borders are expanded. The land has not only been taken, but it has been expanded to its utmost. There is peace in the land. David's hands were bloody. Solomon's hands are not. He can build a temple, and now he has built the temple. It has been done according to all of the specifications that God has laid out. God has given skills and workmanship to many people as he's put his spirit on them to do the things that he has called them to do. And now God has a firm and final resting place there amongst his people. This is a culmination of a lot of stuff. This is a celebration of everything that could go right in Israel. Israel was on track and life was indeed very, very good. Even the beginning of Solomon's time as king starts about as well as you could ever expect a king to start. In 1 Kings 3, verse 3, we read this. These are stunning words given where we end up. Solomon loved the Lord. Walking in the statutes of David, his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people 
that I may discern between good and evil? For who is able to govern this, your great people? And it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. Man, there is no better start for a kingdom than that. He recognizes the grace of God to put him there. He recognizes the need of God to be merciful and gracious to him all the more as he goes forward. He loved the Lord. He loved the Lord. It's a wonderful start. Everything is going well. But, but, not everything is going well. Just before that passage, there is, there is a hint that things are not quite right. And in the beginning of that chapter, in chapter 3, we read this. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. So, it's odd. Egypt always and Pharaoh always, that's a byword in the Bible. Matthew will turn this on its head in, in the opening chapters of the gospel of Christ according to Matthew. But in the Old Testament, Egypt, Egypt's always a bad thing. Egypt's never a good thing. Go back, do a word search on Egypt, and every time you find it, it is the Lord declaring, I, the Lord your God, have brought you out of Egypt. You are out of Egypt. And, and he says specifically in Deuteronomy, you are never to go back to Egypt. You are never to go back there. And immediately, we find here that Solomon, while he is loving the Lord, while he asks for this tremendous gift of wisdom, has this one tiny thing. He, he goes to Pharaoh for a marriage alliance. It doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal. Matthew Henry says something very interesting about this. He says, here is something concerning which it may be doubted whether it was good or no. First, his marrying Pharaoh's daughter. We will suppose that she was proselytized. Otherwise, the marriage would not have been lawful, yet... Even if so, it was surely not advisable. And you can see Henry's kind of looking at this and scratching his head and saying, it, it, it doesn't seem right. Even if she comes back and, and takes upon the form of worship and worships only Yahweh, only in the temple that Solomon will build, only if she does what is, is good and right and holy according to the law of Moses, even if she does all of that, there's something off-putting about him going to Egypt and taking a wife for himself. The question is, why would Scripture mention it? it Henry's right at this point in time. We hear something like that, we say, okay, well, we don't know precisely why this is mentioned. We don't even know what importance we should attach to it. It does seem odd, but we go on. We find that there are cracks in other places in his life. We go up to chapter 4. As, as Solomon's fame is spreading and his wealth is spreading, we read this in 426. Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots, and 12,000 horsemen. That's in 1 Kings 4, 26, and that's from the Christian Standard Bible. It's presented pretty factual. Again, it's not presented, it's, it's much like the marriage alliance with Pharaoh's daughter. It, it doesn't seem like it, it's being implied as much. There's just a lot of horses. Part of us reads that and we say immediately, well, 
horses are just an incredibly important thing in ancient Israel. Certainly militarily, this would be a good strategy. If you have horses and you have horsemen and you have chariots, you can fight off your enemies. And all of this seems to be ringing true. And we can defend him all we want to, but we are reminded of a passage in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 17, 16 through 20, we read this. The king must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of the book of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children and Israel. Immediately, two things pop out. He's not to have many horses. He's not to be in Egypt. He's not to acquire many wives either, which doesn't take long for Deuteronomy to, or excuse me, for First Kings to start filling out. And the question about his wealth comes up almost immediately. And as you read through, even earlier in chapter four, of all of the provision that came to Solomon, verse twenty-two, Solomon's provision for one day for his court for one day was thirty cores of fine flour, sixty cores of meal, ten fat oxen. When we were in Louisville, we went to an all-you-can-eat steak buffet. It was fantastic. I ate your other elder under the table, and we did not, we did not eat ten fat oxen. Okay, we we couldn't. That is a huge amount of meat. This is for one day for his court. He is immensely rich. Even going down, if you, going down to Egypt, we, we see that in Deuteronomy, you, you can't go down in Egypt in order to acquire many horses. It seems like First Kings gets around to implying that's exactly what Solomon was doing when he made the marriage to the Pharaoh's daughter in the first place. First Kings 10, 28 and 29. Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Ku. And the king's traders received them from Ku at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver, so it was expensive. In order to buy that chariot, what did you have to have? Loads o cash. Solomon, who started out loving the Lord, loving the Lord, has all these small indications that things are not right. And finally, we get back in chapter 11, the absolute blowing up of Solomon's life. 1 Kings 11 says this. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Notice, he mentions her here. Now, he has mentioned her in, in another passage in between these two, but this is really the uptake of it. We, when we hear that, we think, oh yeah, he married the daughter from Egypt. That was weird. I don't know why he did that. And now we're getting the sort of the fruit of that marriage. He loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, 
Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after other gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. Now, I know, I know that there is a little bit of flexibility in interpretation, right? And so when Deuteronomy says you shouldn't take for yourselves many, right? You can bend that a little bit, but I'm thinking 700 is many, okay? I'm thinking that he kind of went over the, the edge of it. The cup overfloweth in wives for him. And so he, 700 wives, it's a lot, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, which is precisely what Deuteronomy says. First Kings is no longer pulling punches. It's no longer hinting. It's saying what happened in Deuteronomy was the picture of exactly what was going to happen to Solomon. His wives turned away his heart, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. It's not without reason that the daughter of Pharaoh is mentioned here again. That small act was the beginning of the downfall for Solomon. And you remember what Matthew Henry said quote, we'll go back to it. I want to take a second to step out from the sermon before we get to some application of this, just to mention a couple of things about scripture. Scripture is beautiful and it is wondrous and it is gracious to you. Even in your reading of it, it is gracious to you. It could have easily just said, okay, so King Solomon's here. He gets rich. This leads to his downfall. And just sort of smack it down for you. He, he took too many wives. He took too many horses. He got too much gold. He got prideful. He got fat. He forgot the Lord, turned to other gods, and his downfall was great. And so it could have just flat out said that and kind of smacked you over the head with it like an iron pan. But instead, what does it do? It, it is beautifully written to subtly hint at the problems that are coming now, what this does, as you're reading, if you're reading carefully and you're, you're trying to think through what's being said here, is it leads you on the same path that Solomon took. It makes you do the same things that Solomon did. We go back to Matthew Henry's quote. Listen to his, his shruggishness about this. Matthew Henry is no fool. He is a wise biblical instructor. You can find his commentary for free. You should use it. If you ever have a question about a passage, he's really, really helpful. People have been helped by him for centuries. And listen to how undecisive he is here. Here is something concerning. There's two things. One was the, the other worshiping in other places, but we're not going to deal with that right now. The main issue was the women, and specifically Pharaoh's daughter. He says, here is something concerning which it may be doubted whether it was good or no. First, his marrying Pharaoh's daughter. We will suppose she was proselyted. Otherwise, the marriage would not have been lawful. Yet, if so, it was surely not advisable. He just kind of throws up his hands. He says, I don't know. And we would do the same. 
And when we get to the horses, and when we get to the money that's being given to him, we can see that and say, that is the blessing of God on Solomon. He is being blessed by the Lord. All of this is being given to him. And he's wise. He is wise. You need to have horses for military protection. He's got a lot of land now. There's enemies all over the place. We know there's enemies all over the place because he's marrying all of them. And so because of that, He's got to have protection, and we can justify his every small action every step of the way. So we get to do precisely what Solomon does. But what we don't get is his abomination. Because we can then have the, the words of 1 first, first Kings 11 kind of hit us and think, those weren't good things. Those were wrong things. Those were bad things. These weren't the blessings of God. We see that all of these small things that happened in Solomon's life that he might have justified, that he might have taken as being the blessings of God poured out on him, these were slowly but surely setting him up for an ultimately, for ultimately failing before the Lord and waking up one day in total apostasy. He loved the Lord. Chapters later, he did not love the Lord with his whole heart. Let's talk for just a couple of moments about a couple of things to take away from this. First, human wisdom is not a gateway for spiritual decisions. Human wisdom is not a gateway for spiritual decisions. Listen, Solomon was an incredibly wise man. He asked for wisdom and how to govern the nation of Israel. And he did so incredibly wisely for someone who asked for wisdom. It was an incredibly wise thing to ask. And then immediately, Scripture turns around and talks about how wise he actually was in dividing what was good and, and bad. He, these prostitutes come to him and they say, we both had kids and hers died and then I think she swapped them. And the other woman says, no, we didn't swap them. And of course, he famously says, bring me a sword. We'll cut it in half and give it to each. And the mother, the true mother says, no, let her have it. And the false mother, out of her bitterness and anger, says, yes, let's cut him. So the wisdom of him spread. It spread all over, all over. In 1 Kings 4, 29 and following, we have these words. God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite. Ethan the Ezraite. Can you believe it? And Heman, not He-Man, but Heman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. He was a man of science. He was a man of education. He was a man of great wisdom. He had everything that, humanly speaking, you could hope to have, and it didn't help him one bit. He turned away. Human wisdom is no gateway, is not a gateway for spiritual decisions. It is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. So reminded as we've been reading through Genesis of, of that beautiful passage when the Satan, as a snake, tempts Eve and she goes through all of the reasons why it's good. All of the reasons why it's, it's 
lovely. All the reasons why it's joyous to take and eat this fruit. And frankly, all of those reasons could be perfectly and totally acceptable. Except for one thing, God said no. Human wisdom is not a gateway for spiritual decisions. Treaties with other countries make sense for your security. Horses from those countries make sense for your military. Wives, in the sense, make a lot of sense because of the political affiliations that they would give to you, but they lack the wisdom of God. This God in whom you are secure. He is a rock and strong tower for you. You don't need the security of the horses or of the political alliances. This God will give you the winning of every battle. You don't need the wives politically. Kings are nothing but a stream of water in his hand and he turns them however he wills. You don't need human wisdom. It is the spiritual wisdom that comes only from God that you need. We were reminded of this even this week. We heard a, a sermon from 1 Corinthians. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The world will never know God through its own wisdom. It is only through the wisdom of the cross that you will know God. Human wisdom is not a gateway for spiritual decisions. Number two, past faithfulness is not a guarantee of future devotion. Past faithfulness is not a guarantee of future devotion. It is very easy for Solomon to look back on his life and to think of even hearing the commendation of God when he was young. This is a wise thing, Solomon. It pleased God. And so God blessed him with this wisdom. And it's easy for Solomon to be trapped up in what David was faithful in, what his father was faithful in, the promises that were made to him. It's easy for Solomon to get wrapped up in the fact that God had given him such tremendous gifts to always be locking down his present circumstances by what has happened instead of what is happening. This is why we continually have warnings in Scripture. The warnings in Scripture are there to keep us from falling away. Again, we talked about this last week. The warnings can be really, really difficult for us to understand. Why? Why are we continually warned about these things? Why are we continually being pressed to not fall away, especially for those of us who believe that Jesus, once we are saved by him, once his blood has been shed for us and applied to our hearts and we are made new again, we will never fall away. Why warn us? He warns us because then we will listen. Because as sheep going astray toward a cliff, we hear his voice and turn around. He needs to warn us lest we go away. It is how he keeps us. Listen to these words from Hebrews chapter 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance 
since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. When you hear those words, you think, I hope that's never me. Christians hear those words and they say, please God, never. Unbelievers hear those words and say, I'm not terribly concerned. The warnings are there for us. Colossians. Colossians 1, we read these words. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in the body of his flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is all good news. That's the gospel. This is what Christ has done. You are alienated. You are evil. You are hostile in mind. You are at enmity with him. Christ has reconciled you to him. He's given you a new heart. You are now friends with God, sons of God. He has made you all one through his body. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. You have to continue. It is not what has happened. It is not walking an aisle when you're 12. It is where you are today. Continue. Heed the warnings of Scripture. This is why Psalm 95, 6 says, as long as today is called today. Right? This is repeated in the book of Hebrews. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture. We are the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, notice how familiar this is sounding. Today, if you hear his voice, as you are walking toward a cliff, do not harden your hearts at Meribah or on the day at Massa in the wilderness. That is important. The book of Hebrews makes a lot out of that word today. Positively, I'm going to make a lot out of it negatively. You don't get to tell yourself, I heard the voice of my master then. You need to hear him today. Today. Past faithfulness is not a guarantee of future devotion because I believe in allegory. Do not be Lot's wife. She looked behind, she looked to her past, and she was made a pillar of salt. Third. Small steps are not guards against great distances. Small steps are not guards against great distances. I've heard from not only Galatians 5, 9, but in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, that wonderful little statement, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Leavens the whole batch of dough. It is these small things, Paul says, that are going to leaven it. And what he means is by the time the leaven is done, it is not what God had intended, right? But where does that leaven come from? He says you don't find it in, in bunches. You find just a touch. It's a touch that ruins you. It's these little things that ruin you. You don't wake up one day and murder someone. There's a million steps you take before you get there. You don't wake up one day and commit moral atrocity in the pastorate as an adulterer. You take millions of little steps there. A Chinese proverb, a journey of a thousand miles begins with one step, and it's usually an encouragement. In order to travel a thousand miles, you've got to step once. I'm telling you to be a thousand miles away from Christ begins with one small step. Listen, Jesus, what a wonderful example of faithful walking in the Lord. Small steps every day. We, we look at his life and we, we tend to 
maximize this beautiful picture of him on a cross, his wonderful obedience to God, not my will but yours be done. The, the incredible amount of faith that took in the Lord to be able to give his life over as a ransom, knowing that God would resurrect him from the dead, but that didn't happen in a vacuum. That happened after decades of faithful walking before the Lord. That happened after Satan tempted him and he proved himself time and time again to be able to overcome those temptations with faith. It was faithful walking in the Lord. Listen to how the book of Hebrews puts it. Again, to the book of Hebrews. It's a good book. We should hang out there more. The book of Hebrews in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now that is actually a ESV kind of kind of botches that again. The CSB gets that right through sufferings plural, not just his cross, but through his life. He was made perfect, able to obtain the obedience that we needed by having a lifetime of obedience. It wasn't one great act of obedience; it was a million small steps. Before that great act, so should we be. There is no little sin. We all, we all want to think that we would do great things for God, that we would be martyred for God, that we would be martyred for the faith. We would die for the faith, but too many of us are unwilling to live for it. We're not willing to do the little things this day that require us that God requires us to do in order to walk faithfully before him. Yet somehow we think that when push comes to shove, we're going to be uber faithful. It doesn't work like that. Small steps every day. Small things bring you down. Not just the small steps away from the Lord. We know this now. We know this better than anyone in history has. Microscopic organisms can kill you. They will kill you. Viruses, bacteria, cancer cells can kill you in the matter of days. They are the tiniest things in the world. Let that speak to us in how we walk before the Lord. Small steps are not guards against great distances. Never, ever think it's a small sin. Therefore, it doesn't matter. That is how you end up at apostasy. Friends, we don't just wake up one morning and get magically transported to the land of unfaithfulness and apostasy. We walked there. We were always walking there, always convinced that small steps weren't going to lead us anywhere. Not, not very far. It's not a big deal. And soon we can't, we can't even see the cross from where we are. And here we return to this beautiful prayer of dedication he says, the heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain God. But what we needed wasn't what God was providing for them there. That was a God in a temple where they offered worship, or they offered worship to him and they offered sacrifices to him that ultimately could not make them new. It might, under the covenant, forgive them but they were going to sin again. It could not make them new. We need sacrifices to cleanse us, not just to forgive us, but to remake us. We need a God who isn't just there where we can find him, but here where he can lead us daily, moment by moment, relying upon the Spirit of God. And so because of these things, God not only sent his Son, the Father sent his Son into the world, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory 
Glory as of the only Son of God from the Father, full of grace and truth. From John 1.14 and then later in John, both of them in turn send the Spirit. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is the promise of the gospel. God the Father, through the work of his Son, has cleared out our sins, forgiven and remade us in his image through the work of his Spirit. Yes, it's true. The heavens and even the highest heavens cannot contain God, but his Spirit dwells in you. You are one with him. Therefore, not only should we praise God, let us live lives that demonstrate this. Listen to Paul as we end with his remarks in Romans 13, beginning in verse 11. Besides this, and Paul was talking about other things, but I, I will say besides what I just said, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. We today might want to change that. The winter is far gone, and the spring is at hand. Walk by faith, people. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let us pray. Father, may we be as our Lord. Father, we want to be faithful in the big things. We want to be a people who are on fire for you and to evangelize the world. We want to grow. We want to see people flood into this church to know you and to know the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, to know the glory of the work that he has done, to know all of the glory that exists in the Trinity. We want that. We want to send people out into the world to see them, to have people sacrifice their lives, not just in death, but even in life, to doing the great things for you. We want to do what William Carey says, expect great things for you and attempt great things for you. But Father, all of those things happen one step at a time. May your spirit impress that upon us. You are faithful. You are faithful to accomplish the great things for us. You are faithful to accomplish not them just for us, but through us. Let us then be faithful, one step at a time. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, stand and sing with us. When I survey the wondrous cross. <laughs>